Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henrik, this Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I wanted to pop in here for a quick reminder that from June 1st through July 31st, our Pride Award submissions are open. The Pride Award is for emerging LBGTQIA plus authors who write in the crime genre. Information is on sistersincrime.org's website and also in the show notes for this episode. Please spread the word. Let anyone know you don't have to be a Sisters in Crime member to submit your materials. Uh, And we're really looking forward to supporting new voices in the crime writing field and new LBGTQIA plus voices. So June 1st through July 31st, check it out on sistersincrime.org. It's not for members only. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really delighted to welcome S.J. Rosen to the podcast today. S.J.'s 18 novels and 80-plus short stories have won multiple awards, including the Edgar, Seamus, Anthony, Nero, and McCavity, and also the Japanese Maltese Falcon. She's been honored with Life Achievement Awards from both the Private Eye Writers of America and the Short Mystery Fiction Society. Many of her stories have appeared in Best of Collections, and she's edited three anthologies. SJ, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I This will be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to start the way I always start these conversations and ask you, um, when did you first say to yourself, I want to write uh, a book or for you also a short story? When did when did it sort of be, become present in your life that this was something you wanted to do? The truth is I was 11, but I was one of those kids who was always going to grow up to be a writer. That was the plan. Wow. Um, but as I grew up, I came to the conclusion somehow that you couldn't just be a writer because you wanted to be a writer, that somehow you had to have, I don't know, a calling, you know, it's a sign from God. So (laughs) I I went, um, I went to college, uh, majored in uh, mass communications, film and photography, really. Mm -hmm. And then I went to grad school uh, for architecture, which I did until I guess I was working for about eight years and mm. I, it was a really lucky thing because I had a great job. I had a great job with a great firm. They were very supportive of women architects, which not everybody was. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my, the projects were good. Everything, the consultants, everything was good. And I wasn't really happy. I was, I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't what I really, really, really wanted. And because of that, I didn't do what a lot of people or what I might have done in other circumstances, which is to say, well, this is a stupid job. I'm going to go get a better job. It clearly wasn't the job. Um, It was the career. It was Mm -hmm. the profession. And as soon as I came to that conclusion, which took a while because I'd invested a lot of time and effort in becoming an architect, but 
Um, finally, I decided, yeah, architecture was not really uh, the, the goal of my heart. The little voice in the back of my head said, hey, weren't we going to write a book? You know, <laughs> are we going to write a crime novel? Isn't that the plan? So I thought, all right, all right, let me try that. And um, so I had been working for about eight years, and I um, I started working on a crime novel. And a couple of pages in, I realized that this was satisfying in a way that mm. architecture really wasn't. Architecture was fun, but it wasn't like when you find the sentence that says what you meant. Um, yeah. And so that that was about when it happened, uh, about eight years into my architecture career. So that would be around 1990, because 1990 was when my first short story was published. I was working by then on a novel. Mm -hmm. I realized I had no idea how to write a novel, and this novel might go on to like the end of my life. So <laughs> I wrote a short story because those you can see all in one uh one kind of arc. And so I thought, all right, let me write something that has a beginning, a middle and an end and see if I can get to the end. And I did. And uh, that story got published. If that story hadn't been published, I think I would have just said, oh, the hell with this. Obviously, I'm no good at this. Goodbye. <laughs> um, so that's I was published. My short first short story was published in 90 and my first novel came out in 94. So that wow. was that was that uh process to get to being a writer as opposed to somebody who thought she maybe wanted to write, but that was in the old days kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, architecture is interesting because that's also, you know, artistic and a calling and a ton of work and, and, you know, hard to find satisfaction. But I, I, I understand completely what you're saying about it wasn't giving you the, oh, you know, it didn't, the, the chord wasn't really resonating. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely what it was. It was fine. It was, you know, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't resonating. Yeah. Um, so I'm just unpacking this a little bit. Was it always going to be a crime novel? Always. That was always what I was interested in from the time I was a kid. You know, I, I uh, uh, especially that private eye voiceover um uh, watching from outside character. Cause mm -hmm. that's what I always was as a kid. I was always a little bit outside. I was always watching what people were doing, trying to figure out what it really meant as opposed to what they were telling me it meant, that kind of thing. And, um, so it was always crime. The thing about crime is it's important. You know, there are a lot of novels that you read. And you think, okay, why did I just spend a week with these people? What have I learned that I didn't know? Mm -hmm. um, crime, you can read some pretty meaningless crime novels too, but crime itself is important, uh, mm -hmm. especially murder, because someone's dead. You know, someone has ended, mm -hmm. been ended mm -hmm. by someone else, and it matters. And finding out why and who matters. Mm -hmm. uh, justice and punishment and, and redemption, I'm not so big on. But learning what happened does matter. And mm -hmm. so that's that was why it was always crime for me. And it was it was never it was always crime in the most literary way possible. 
but it was never literature for its own sake, as it were. Right. Well, the great Kate Flora says that literature is just another, literary fiction is just another genre. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And can be broken down into coming of age and yeah. the road story and all these other. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's um, it it's all a matter of uh, how academia describes it. Yes. That's that's really all it is. I have a whole rant I can do on that, but you don't want to hear. <laughs> well, we might want to hear it. We'll see how this the rest of the conversation goes. But I think it's an important conversation because a lot of people listening to this podcast have probably sat in a workshop or gone to a lecture where they were made to feel less than as a writer because they write genre. I would say about that, and I, this has been said before, but I would say about that, that um, not only are you not less than, if you're writing a high quality genre novel. You are um, Ginger Rogers to Fred Astaire. You're doing everything he does except backwards and in high heels. <laughs> so, you know, that's, <laughs> I that's a t-shirt. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, what were your first books that you read as a kid? Like what, what made you fall in love with the crime genre? Well, for crime, it was Nancy Drew. I That was in the days when they only came out one a year. Mm -hmm. um, I would get one for my birthday. Yeah. Uh, my, whatever else I got, they knew I wanted a Nancy Drew book. And so I got that. Um, and um, I also, the book that I remember falling in love with to the point where I got to the second to last chapter and realized that after I read that one and the one after it, there wouldn't be any more. And I was upset. I yeah. remember that was Howard Pyle's Robin Hood. Now these oh. were mysteries, but they were adventure. Yeah. And they were, they were, the characters were clever and they were nice. And yeah. the bad guys were really bad. And the good guys kept outsmarting them. You know, it, it had, it, it was a crime for the, uh, for the medieval times. And I loved that book. And then I would read um, all the, you know, in those days, they didn't call them middle school. You know, you were in the kids section of the library until you were in the adult section. There was no. But I read every mystery thing in the uh, in the kids section of the library and a lot of science fiction, too. I remember a book. I don't think anybody has read this book, uh, you know, in the last 50 years. But um, Astrid Lundgren, who wrote Pippi Longstocking, mm -hmm. wrote a couple of uh, crime novels where the kids solve the crime. And one of them was called Bill Bergson Lives Dangerously. And <laughs> I must have taken that book out of the library a hundred times. You know, you had to return it. And then yeah. you couldn't get it out again right away. So you had to wait till somebody else returned it. And then I would take it out again, read it again. And then I would return it. I loved that book. Um, I haven't read it since. And I don't know whether it's any good, but that was uh, two, three kids. Uh, one of them, I think, was visiting from somewhere and the other two lived in their little town. And a bad guy came to town and they had to, like, save all the all the grownups. <laughs> it was great. So, so that was all the, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of not remembering all the mystery and crime and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, that was um, I'm I'm you know, older than the, the dinosaurs. So that was before Encyclopedia Brown and, and those guys. But mm -hmm. um, 
was it was that and it was it was crime tv shows my parents were addicted to perry mason uh, <laughs> and i would watch and i half the time really didn't know what was going on but here was this lawyer who only had good guy clients and this private eye who perched on the yeah. end the desk and smoked and and the secretary who was actually a little bit smarter than the lawyer and i mean it's <laughs> great stuff so that was that was where i uh where i started oh well perry mason holds up too i mean i remember watching it as a kid and now i watch it as an adult and i understand more and i also recognize all the stars of yesteryear and it's a right. wonderful right. show <laughs> um so you talked about, you know, you're eight years into your career. You're realizing that you, you know, you got to do this other thing. You wrote your first short story because the writing the novel just sort of became was more than you understood. How did you build the craft of writing a novel? Because it is that first novel is is about learning how to write a novel. I mean, it's it's not a simple thing. No, it's not. And um, luckily for me, and this has happened a number of times in my career, luckily for me, I didn't understand how hard it was. I didn't understand what I was getting into because uh, if I had, I might not have done it. I might have been so intimidated. I did another short story at about two thirds of the way through for the same reason. I thought, okay, I have all these people running around doing all these things. I don't know what half of them are up to. Um, I really need to stop and take a breath and do this again, get to Mm -hmm. the end of, um, and the thing about the, and that one got published too. So I was, I was really lucky. The thing about writing a novel for me is that I don't outline. I never have because until the characters start doing things, I don't know who they are. I, Mm -hmm. I can say, okay, you're going to be the bad guy doctor who's stealing all the drugs. And I had a guy like that once. It turned out he was the good guy doctor who was stealing all the drugs because he was stealing them so he could run a free clinic for the local gang kids who wouldn't go to real doctors. I didn't know that until Mm -hmm. he wouldn't do the bad things I wanted him to do, but I knew he was stealing drugs. So I had to figure out why. So I don't outline. So that first book, I did not outline, but I did a couple of things on purpose. And one was, now this, that first book I wrote uh, was Stone Quarry. It came out sixth in my series. It set up state. And the reason for that is because even then, I knew that New York City crime is ethnic crime. New York City is a multi-ethnic city. And you can't write just white people. And I wasn't ready to write multi-ethnic characters. I figured if I could handle, um, you know, the upstate Irish and Italians, that was like the best I could do at the moment. Mm -hmm. And then Lydia. Um, But even Lydia in that book is not home in Chinatown. I wasn't ready. And so I did that on purpose. And I also knew, and this happens to me in all the books, I knew something important about a scene much farther on in the book, uh, further on, much further on in the book, some about two thirds of the way in. Sometimes that scene is much closer to the end, but I knew that I was heading there. And I knew a third thing, which was the theme 
of the book. Mm -hmm. I always know that. And in the case of Stone Quarry, my first book, it was all about unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Um, It was about loving people who don't necessarily deserve it and might not even know. Mm -hmm. And that was what I was writing toward. And every time I got screwed up. Now, I didn't I didn't consciously know I was doing this then. I have since. But every time I got screwed up, I would look and see what the next move could be. When I say screwed up, it usually means I don't know what to do next. Uh, I would look and see what the next move could be that would relate back to that theme. Mm-hmm. And I would find something that... Mm-hmm. I mean, something would suggest itself. I was always careful with my sentences. I was always careful with word choice and rhythm and vividness and all that. Even Mm -hmm. though I didn't know where something was going, I never neglected craft at that level in order to get where I was going. I'm not a proponent of the shitty first draft. Uh, many people are. And if it works for you, do it. You know, <laughs> But I'm always afraid that um, if I come out with shit, it will stay shit. <laughs> that it has to come out good or as good as I can make it the first time. Um, or I, mean, I, I write iteratively, which means I, I will write and then go back. I, I always edit what I did yesterday okay. when I started day and then I go on and then I may go back and edit what I did last week while I'm in the middle of writing today because I realized that something I'm doing um reflects back on that or I suddenly you know will be will be putting away the laundry and I will realize you know I don't mean that word I mean this word and I'll go back and do that so I go round and round and round and round I edit as I go uh I, I edit as I write the first time the sentence comes out the first time already edited in my head. Edited is a hard word for me. It is a hard word. Already, already having been through an edit in my head. Um, but also I, I will do it again and again and again. And I have um, woken up in the middle of the night with the right word from a scene uh, in a book like three books ago that I never quite got that word right. And suddenly now I know what it is. And if they ever do another edition, I'm going to demand that they put in that (laughs) word. But but so I'm craft on that level has always been really important. The craft, the methodology of writing a novel, I've had to kind of grope my way toward. Mm -hmm. And I have been grateful to the writer's, the famous writers I was paying attention to when I was a little pisher who also don't outline mm-hmm. because I can't do it. And I was thinking, boy, I would be a much better writer if I could. And all the, all the good writers, they all outline. And, and I heard Sarah Paretsky on a uh, panel once saying she didn't outline. And one of the men on the panel said, Oh my God, Sarah, don't say that because you, you, you're six novels in, obviously, you can handle it. But there are lots of people out in this audience who, you know, they should be outlining. And I'm thinking, oh, shut up and let her talk. <laughs> She's my hero. And, um, and so I paid attention to, to those people and, and to, to, their, to their 
tricks of staying on track when they weren't outlining. And, and that was how I groped my way toward what is now my method, which also involves a lot of panicking about a third of the way through the novel. <laughs> when I realized that, again, I have all these people running around. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're trying trying to do. And, you know, some of them, I don't even really know why they're there. They came in and, and to do a thing in the novel, and now they won't leave. Um, <laughs> but now I trust that all of this writing as it does for all of us, is coming out of my subconscious. The mm-hmm. people who outline can access their subconsciouses at a more conscious level than those of us who don't outline. Mm-hmm. They can go in there and see what it is they want to say and bring that forward. I also think that um, outlining is another way of saying they get to panic before they admit to themselves they're writing a book. Mm-hmm. That Jeffrey Deaver famously writes a 200-page outline for a 300-page book. And it's in that outline that he works out all the things that I work out when I get to that scene in the book. But he doesn't have to get the stomachache I get every morning because he's not really writing the book. He's just writing the outline, you know? <laughs> and when yeah. he's when he's finished writing the outline, he basically puts in the uh, physical descriptions and the dialogue, and he's done. Mm-hmm. But it's the same process. He just calls it something different. And I, I think it's you divide it up differently. I do the uh, the sentence by sentence, word choice by word choice craft as I'm coming out with the story. Jeffrey Deaver doesn't. Mm-hmm. But it's eventually you have to cover all those uh, bases, and and you do. So that's um, that that's that's how I sneak up on it in a way. Well, again, I'm going to keep unpacking some of this. I I love um, to you talking about your process because I find it fascinating um, as somebody who does outline. <laughs> but how do you keep? This is what I marvel at especially for folks who edit as they go, how do you keep that all in your brain? The book in your brain and what you wrote last week and everything else all, you know, and and then having characters show up or plots coming up. Do you just live your novel as you're writing it? And, and, you know, it's always a focus. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It doesn't really happen that way for me. But what does happen, well, remember, I do keep going back. Yeah. Um, the the subplots appear as I'm going along. Mm-hmm. And the I, I do a thing about, often, not always. I didn't for this last one I wrote, but I've done it, uh, where I will do about halfway through what I refer to as a back outline, where I will take different colored index cards. And this is especially true if I'm writing in more than one voice, which Mm -hmm. doesn't happen in Bill and Lydia's, except that it did happen in Shanghai Moon, which had a lot of uh, uh, newspaper stories and diaries and things from uh, 50 years ago, because that was when the case went back to, I think it's 60 years ago now. But um, And uh, Paper Sun, the same thing, because a lot of that 
had to do with the past. And I'll take index cards of different colors, one color for each character who's important, who's seen it really is. Uh, In a multi-point of view novel, it's the point of view character, but even in uh, Shanghai Moon and Paper Sun, it's the important character in the scene. And I will write out, starting from the beginning of the book, the scene number, that is the this, yeah, the scene number, the date, the time of day, of where it takes place, not when I'm doing it, and the basic action of the scene. And I will put them all, line them all up on my uh, mantelpiece, uh, tape them to the mantelpiece. Mm-hmm. And I can look that way and see what's clumped together that might be better spread apart and where you're not hearing from somebody and, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I do have an outline of where I started from to where I am now. Mm-hmm. So that that really helps. The other thing I do is I keep a yellow pad by the side of the um, the laptop. And when things happen, and I realize I have to go back and fix something because this just happened, or I have to make sure that it's clear that this guy knew this thing, even though I didn't know at the time that he knew it. I will write it down on the pad. Those aren't things that I have to do now, but they're things that have to get done to make the book make sense. Mm-hmm. So going forward, but I, I will, uh, I'll put that down as a thing to look at. And the same, I mean, I also put down on that pad uh, geography to make sure of, can you really turn left off that street to get to yeah. the other, that kind of thing. But in terms of keeping it all in my head, I do firmly believe it's already all in my head. It's in my subconscious. You just have to let it breathe. And there are times when I will leave the desk. I'm actually, um, you think I'm in a tunnel in the Bronx, but I'm (laughs) at my desk. And I will go over to the sofa, which is eight feet from here. It's a very small apartment. And I'll sit there with a different yellow pad and I'll say, okay, now what? Well, Mm -hmm. what have we come to? Where do we want to go? What would be the action for Bill or Lydia here? And there are times when I get really, really stuck. And then I use the technique, which I think everybody's been taught, of thinking up the weirdest stuff you could possibly think up. And just, you know, starting from the Martian's land and just all kinds of, you know, a dog comes in and, 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 and bites the character, the dog is rabid. The dog is, you know, has a tag. The tag says he belongs to the mayor, the, you know, anything you can think of. And in there someplace will be something that isn't so weird that all of this weird stuff jogs loose. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do that. Um, and, and once, honest to God, I could not, for the life of me, come up with anything that made sense and so I turned to the um, book, the Holy, the Holy Writ of St. Raymond Chandler, and <laughs> I brought a guy in with a gun. Uh, huh? No, <laughs> and it worked. Um, he didn't actually come in with a gun going, you know, you're, I'm going to get you. But a guy who had a gun, I thought, mm-hmm. well, who has guns? The bad guys have guns. But in this, that was um, reflecting the sky and bill and lydia were in hong kong and they'd been mm-hmm. kicked off the case by the uh by the uh client and they didn't know anybody they didn't 
they, they were sitting at a park thinking, well, what the hell can we do now? And they got a phone call from a cop because I figured the bad guys have guns, but the bad guys aren't going to come attack them because they're useless. They don't know right. anything. But if there were a cop who had been told by somebody in New York to look out for them and give them a hand, and he happened to call at exactly that time and said, I'm supposed to give you a hand, they could then say, aha, well, we actually need a hand right now. So let's get together and talk. And that's what yeah. happened. And that was that's because Damon said to bring a, yeah. bring a guy with a gun and figure it out later. <laughs> so you write series, short stories, all sorts of, uh, I mean, very prolific short story writer. And that's a completely different skill set as well. Um, and you've also edited anthologies and you teach writing and you run retreats and, and all of this. How... Um, do you have anything that resonates more with you? Do you love revisiting your characters because you've got a long running series? Do you love, you know, having a, a moment where you could just write this short story and get it out of you? I mean, what's is there anything in particular in, in your writing life that you really you think this is I mean, it's all hard and there are moments that everybody has a <laughs> you know I'm never going to write another book I can't do this I've been, I'm a fraud I've got to return my money but you know once you've worked through that is there anything that you really love um more than the rest of it or do you love everything well uh the one thing you didn't mention that I really love best but it's not very useful is research I love uh... research books or stories that I'm about to write. Um, I mean, I just, I just love being in the library, being on Google, being, you know, talking to people. That's my favorite part. Other than that, I, I, I love to teach, but I think the, my favorite thing is writing a novel. I mm -hmm. like writing short stories, but you, short stories are really a one-off. And they're more about the idea behind the story. Sometimes it's a it's a plot twist. Sometimes it's a voice. Sometimes it's a location. But they're really about that more than any uh, multi multi depth kind of thing. Where novels really are about story, plot, character, mm -hmm. location. You can you can use more words in a novel in fact you have to but um you can you can do descriptions of things that in a short story you just wouldn't go into they would overweight it that kind of thing so i i do like writing novels um i think best of all um editing as Lawrence Block has pointed out recently, is a way you can stay in the business without actually doing a lot of work. Um, the, you know, most, most of all three of the anthologies I edited, and one was with um, Jonathan Sandlofer, we, we did it together. All three of them, the writers were such pros that there wasn't a lot of work for us to do in terms mm -hmm. of, of editing the stories. So that was, those, those were, those were fun. Mm -hmm. And I'd more I'd be open to do more of that. But um the, the 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 teaching and the novel writing, the short stories I write when I either get a commission or get an idea I can't resist. Um and I do them because I, I I'm pretty pretty it, it's pretty well known that uh, SJ Roseanne will say yes to anything you ask her to do. Um <laughs> if if you pay, and not because 
short stories make me a fortune. They never, I mean, they never pay hardly anything. But if the editor is paying, it means either they have a commitment from a publisher or they're paying out of their own pocket, which means Mm -hmm. they're really committed to having this book published. I won't do a story on spec for a book that's being done on spec because that just ties up a story for a year or more for something that may never happen. Mm-hmm. But if you have an anthology that that pays, and you know, not much, but just you know something yeah. that proves somebody is dedicated to this book, I will probably do it. And the reason is a short story lets you focus on something you might not focus on otherwise. It mm-hmm. lets you try a voice. I did one, I think I might have done two, but I have the feeling it's only one, in the second person present tense, which wow. is really not something you'd want to do a whole novel in. Very few people do. Um, Bright Lights, Big City is second person present yeah. tense. And, uh, you know, there there are a couple, but it's just it's just a really difficult voice. But I thought <laughs> I'd try it for, you know, the length of a short story. You can do things like that. You can, you can really mess with what you usually do i did one uh the editor of the anthology was complaining that the guy he had edited before me i i didn't have my story in yet but somebody did and he used way too many dialogue tags said the editor and he just was making him nuts he said she said he said she said and i thought all right let me see if i can do a story with no dialogue tags at all um i wouldn't try that in a novel you know (laughs) <laughs> I did it in the short story. It's a little weird. Um, if I were to rewrite that story, I would throw in it, he said, every now and then. But it also showed me a real it, – it, it, it kind of brought to my consciousness what had always been kind of unconscious, which is the knowledge that you don't need dialogue tags if you can show the action in between. Mm-hmm. And I – I had to do that in this story because I'd set myself that challenge. So I really like short stories for that reason, because you can do things you wouldn't do mm-hmm. in a novel, uh, especially if you have an ongoing series. Now I have now have two ongoing series and a bunch of standalones and that kind of thing. But even then, I some of the things I do in short stories, I couldn't do in, in any of these books right. so i i'm a great believer in short stories also i i think it really mattered that i had three short stories published when my first novel went out for sale mm-hmm. because uh it lets and then this is for for the new writers um who are listening to this but if you have short stories published before you try to get your novel published it it lets editors and agents even know that you're serious and you're a pro Mm -hmm. done this before you intend to keep doing it and that matters because they you know the they (laughs) the great the great reed coleman once said about publishing nobody ever got fired for saying no they get (laughs) fired for saying yes if something they say yes to didn't work Mm-hmm. But nobody ever got fired for saying no. So you want to, they need a real reason to say yes, because no is the default. 
Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons is they can see that I, I have a student now who has been in the she hasn't been able to sell her novel yet, but she's been in the last two best American short story collections. Wow. And she won the Black Orchid novella contest. Wow. So, you know, she will be looked at differently now when the yeah. novel goes out to agents. So that's the kind of thing that that when I started doing short stories, that was my reasoning. Now I do them so I can I can try on another voice and another uh, another attitude toward mm-hmm. literature. I love what you just said about short stories. And, and I also do marvel at, at your you know, how many you've written because they're so hard <laughs> to write, I think. Um, but when, let's just go back to talk about novels a little bit and character arcs and plot arcs and sort of how how far ahead do you think for your series uh, as far as, you know, do you think of them as standalones with with the team that, you know, people you've, you've come to love? Or do you sort of think, I want to move them here and it's going to take three books to get there? Or how do you work with that? Yeah, I, I've never thought in terms of, of arcs, although it also has always been clear to me that the relationship that Bill and Lydia started with, they couldn't sustain that they would either either have to grow closer or further apart. But other than that, um, I do try to give Lydia's family a little breathing room. I had uh, an early book that had a lot to do with her brother Andrew, and uh, her brother Tim has come around a couple times. Her brother Elliot has been... No, Ted has been in and out, although he's never had a story center around him, but we've been to his house and stuff. Elliot has not been seen much, and so I want to do the next book uh, mm-hmm. centered around him. Uh, I, I've known that, that, that Lydia's family, because she's such a family gal. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't have a plan for them. I modeled what I was doing without knowing I was modeling anything, but I modeled it on um, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And then later on, um, uh, uh, you know, Marlowe and, and Spade and, and Warshawski and, and all these people who have a group of people around them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get added to that group and, and sometimes um, they, you know, form the group in the first book and then that's it whatever but a group of people or your your detectives with a group of people who just keep going mm-hmm. you know, i mean Nan- nancy drew and 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 beth and george and and uh um ned the boyfriend mm-hmm. ned and frank the father oh man yeah. god what a memory um <laughs> you know they all they never changed they never yeah. changed um and uh it's that vision i guess that that i had you know which is why um although the first book came out in 94 so that's 30 years now bill and lydia are maybe three or four years older than they used to be yeah because i i was not about to do what robert b parker did which is to let spencer age in real time which is why he had to create jesse stone because spencer by that time was in his seventies and, and so was Hawk. And although they went to the gym all the time, they just weren't 
up to the kind of physical yeah. private eye stuff that uh, that that you need to, to be able to do. So Bill and Lydia are just sort of sliding through time. I mean, there's only three ways to do it. You know, they can slide through time. You can do what Parker did, or you can do what um, Sue Grafton was doing, which is to start when you start and set each book a couple of months after, you know, mm-hmm. and finally writing historicals, which is what she yeah. was doing. Yeah. There's no other, there's no other way really. Um, so I've chosen the kind of the middle way, which is <laughs> the least um, real. Yeah. But book time. Yeah. It, you know, but it's, it's what, um, it it's what works for the characters as I created them. Did you know that you were going to be doing that, you know, um, writing in book time uh, when you started? Or did you sort of think maybe I'll do it a year at a time or? No, 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 no. I always knew that that whatever was happening in the world, Bill and Lydia were Bill and Lydia and would respond to it. Now, they have changed as I have changed, Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't intend I, I never thought I would do either a year at a time, let them get older, or um, keep it all in the in the past. I, I find the challenges of the present as the present goes along to be very interesting. Yeah. And so I wanted them to be in the same world I'm in. And so no, it never it never occurred to me to to do it the other way. Also, when I started, uh, Parker. You know, uh, uh, Spencer was probably in his 40s, maybe getting close to 50. You know, he, he wasn't 70 yet when I started. Yeah. So I hadn't seen the result of that because, um, the, you know, the, the greats from from the previous uh, era, Chandler and and uh, and and such, they did book time. They just, you know, yeah. their guys just went on um, and, and occasionally they would refer to the war. Um, uh, Marlowe had a story set during the war, which was World War II. Uh, so you knew there was a war on and it mattered because the question was, were the bad guys going to blow up the dam? But it, uh, uh, Marlowe didn't change. He yeah. was whatever he was, 28 or 31 or, you know, whatever. So. Yeah. Well, again, these are choices and things we you come to realize you need to think about, um, you know, and early on, maybe not as much, but um, these are decisions that you make. Uh, And I do think that the book time is interesting because it does let you reflect on the present and figure out what's going on. Earlier, you talked about um, having themes for, for novels. Again, I, I don't know that something that's something people think about when they first start, but that is such an important part of adding cohesiveness to a novel and, and just bringing it back to, well, what's this book about? Um, you know, we all did themes in high school and usually hated that discussion. But as a writer, you're like, oh, no, this is about unconditional love or this is about this book's about revenge or this whatever it is. Um, how do you? use the present and do you use specific characters or situations to help develop the theme or do you just as you're starting do you say this book's going to be about you know um i don't know uh, unconditional love and and you know that's just resonating with you as you're starting the book i i i get the theme from the early interaction of the characters 
When I started The Art of Violence, it was based on actually something that had really happened and that had struck me at the time as really fascinating because the people involved hadn't followed the logical development of what they were doing and and seen where it could lead. And the issue was how much responsibility does art have to the rest of the world and does the rest of the world have to the artist? And that then informed everything that went on in in that book. Uh, the one that I just finished, which will be out in early December this year, mm-hmm. called The Mayors of New York. And it's really about who runs what? Who is really in charge? What it really means to have power and what kind of power? And I, I learn these things as I'm turning over in my mind the idea for the book. And it kind of comes, you know, like in the, uh, the old eight balls, you know, the thing that floats yeah. out of the murk and it says, you know, power. Yeah. <laughs> that that's what this book is about. I, I'm going to um, uh, give you here what I got um, the, the best metaphor for this that I ever heard was I, I used to have an interview series at uh, New York's 92nd Street Y. I would interview writers. And um, I interviewed Martin Cruz Smith, whom mm-hmm. I adore. And he said, I, I asked him at the end of the interview, if he had any advice for uh, the writers in the room, um, what, you know, especially what to do when they got stuck. Mm-hmm. And he gave the advice that his father gave him. His father was not a writer. His father was a big band leader. And he used to say to the guys in the band, he when he was hiring new uh, musicians, he would say, when you get lost, and you're going to get lost, you're going to be up there on the bandstand, and we're going to be playing, and you're going to be thinking about how your girlfriend ditched you, you're going to be thinking about how hungry you are, and what's for dinner, and suddenly you're going to realize you have no idea where we are. You have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. Look to the melody. Look yeah. to the melody. Find who has it and what he's doing with it, and you'll know right what to do next. And that's sort of what the theme is to me. It's the melody. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I get lost, once I've established in my head what the theme of the book is, the new Lydia book, uh, yeah, Lydia book that I'm about to start, because Mayors of New York is a bill book, the new Lydia book I'm about to start is, I'm not sure what the theme is. So I'm still turning it over. I know where it's set. Uh, I know it involves Lydia's brother, Elliot. I know it's, um, he's a doctor. The book is set around a hospital. I know all this, but I'm not sure what the one or three or five word theme is. Mm-hmm. And when that floats up from the Merck, uh, and that'll probably be about two chapters in. I usually have to start, get people talking, and then that floats up. And then I know, um, and I, I can... I can go on, and every time I get lost, I go back to that and say, okay, this is if that's what this is about, 
what could happen next that would reinforce that, either by actually reinforcing it or by working against it. Mm-hmm. A way to reinforce something. So um, that's that's what what I'll do. And that's how the, the theme works for me. But the theme, you don't have to know the theme before you start. I think a lot of people are afraid that they do. You don't. But you do have to know the theme by, uh, I, I would say, three, four chapters in. You have to mm-hmm. look at yourself and say, okay, what? why am I writing this book? Right. That's what the about is. It's not, this is a book where two people... Uh, go to the seashore and find no that's the, 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 it's what is it about it's about alienation okay mm-hmm. in that case your people going to the seashore you know are they going to a town where nobody knows them and nobody right. likes them and you know that kind of thing or if it's about friendship maybe they go to a town and find everybody likes them you have to know why you're writing the book more than just the story in the book and do you do your subplots also work with the theme? Yeah, they either work with it or against it. Uh, yeah. Always, always, yeah. So that yeah. in family business, everything involved somebody's family, a chosen family, um, a a blood family. It was some everybody, everything was about dealing with family. One of the families was a gangster family. A bunch of guys got together. They were gangsters and that mm-hmm. was a family. You know, they do that in, in Chinese culture as well as in mafia and, yeah. and Italian and uh, Irish culture. But that was the family. And so everything in family business was about family. Mm-hmm. Lydia's family, everybody's family. Yeah. And how long does it take you to write a book? On average, it takes a year, although Mm -hmm. some of them have taken two, some of them have taken nine months. I just did one in my new series that I'm starting in six months, but that isn't really fair because I'm writing with a partner and he writes the outline. So we we kind of agree what's going to happen. And then he writes chapter by chapter how it happens. This is a thrill. I cannot tell you what a thrill this is um, because I can't outline. But I do understand that you outlining people um, have a, a kind of advantage I don't have when you get up in the morning and see what you're going to do next. So that's what happened with this one. But, you know, it took me six months to write that book. It took him, you know, at least six months to do the outline. So right. the book takes a year. There's really nothing I can do about it. Um, and it i i know there are people who write much faster i i was just at the los angeles times uh book festival uh and i was moderated a panel cory doctorow was on it whom i worship and i uh he said he has four books coming out in the next 12 months and i said how did you do that and he said well i write when i'm anxious and so these are all pandemic books. <laughs> you know, okay, that's, that doesn't really explain it, but if that's how it works for you, you know. So there are people who can write much faster than I can. Lawrence Block can write a book in six weeks, but then he basically has to go lie down for two months. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I write steadily. I get up in the morning. I write three, four hours. Then I'm done. Then I have to go to the gym or whatever it is, and then I come back and I can edit, but I can't really write anymore. 
I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the, uh, I'm the tortoise, you know? Yeah. No. Well, obviously it works well for you. Um, your co-writing, um, I don't know how much you could talk about this, but I, is this the first time you've co-written something with someone? No. Uh, a number of years ago, I co-wrote two novels with a different partner. Those were paranormals and Mm -hmm. we were planning to explain the existence using uh, one of my favorite things, which is bullshit science. Uh, We were using bullshit science to explain the existence of every paranormal creature in all cultures on Earth. Unfortunately, after the second book, the uh, publisher's imprint folded. And that was it for us. So all you get is uh, vampires and werewolves. We could have gone on. You'll probably never know. Um, But having had that experience, uh, I was open to this, this new thing, which uh, my agent called me like three months into the pandemic. And he said he had talked to a guy who he thought was maybe kind of nuts, but had a number of great ideas. And one of them was perfect for me. And would I talk to him? And it's like three months in the pandemic. I'm talking to the walls, you know, (laughs) why wouldn't I talk to him? A human being with thoughts? No. So I talked to him. His name is John Nee. He used to, he's uh, half Chinese. He used to be the publisher at Marvel Comics. And oh. uh, he had these this idea for a series set in London, uh, starting in London, uh, 1924, where the writer Lao She, who is a real Chinese writer and was very famous up until the Cultural Revolution when he died, did he commit suicide? Was he murdered? Does it matter? You know, yeah. um, and uh, then, you know, got rehabilitated as they do 10 years later and is now very famous again. Um, he was actually in real life in London in 1924 to 27, 28, 29. It's not really clear. And uh, wrote a couple of books based on having been there novels. Um, he was very funny and he uh, John's idea was that he would be the Watson to the Sherlock Holmes of Judge D, who was another real character. Uh, if if people have read him, it's in the Van Gulick stories. But Judge D was a very famous jurist in China in the Tang Dynasty, which uh, people may or may not know ended in the year 906. Um, but so we moved Judge D about... 1200 years forward, you know, into, uh, <laughs> into uh, the 20th century. But, you know, people are always moving Sherlock Holmes around, you know, yeah. or, or uh, I just read a short story where the uh, Bronte sisters and, and, and brother are, uh, are uh, uh, quarantining in the pandemic. So, you know, people do this to historical characters. So Laoshe and, and Judge D investigate uh, uh, murders, the murders of uh, some Chinese men in London in 1924. And that's the first book in the series. It's called The Murder of Mr. Ma, and it will be out in spring 24, which wow. uh, from Soho, which publishers tell me is spring is any time from uh, February to May, and they haven't decided yet. So, but it, so it's be out about a year from now. So that's that series. And having worked on the first co-written books, I had more of a sense of how to work on, on the mm-hmm. second set. And the first set was, it was the same. Um, 
my partner provided the outline and, and, uh, and I looked at it and said, Oh my God, um, in both cases. And, um, and this, this second set, uh, John provided an outline and it was so detailed that it was, it had like three books in it. So I had to extricate yeah. the first book and, and write that. Um, and so I do all the writing. Uh, I do the voice, the characters, the setting and all, but, um, it uh, and and if it hadn't worked, this was interesting. Once we were settled on what we were actually doing, I wrote two chapters and sent them to him mm-hmm. because that was the voice of Lao She as I understood it. And if it hadn't worked, if he hadn't liked it, that would have been the end of that because I couldn't by then change that voice. Mm-hmm. So that was quite a risk, but he loved it. He said, this is exactly what I hoped for. So I thought, great. Um, so then we went on. And boy, wow. that, was that was a lot of fun. And if you love research, I mean, you're really diving into a lot there. Well, and yeah, and that was um, what's interesting is that the thing that John didn't know about that I also didn't know about was London in 1924. But the the circumstances surrounding the book have to do with the Chinese labor corps in Europe in World War One, which I had not heard of, and a couple of other things uh, that I didn't know about. And John sent me books. He ordered books from bookshop.org and from shh, Amazon. And he sent me books from his own library and books from the Strand. These books started arriving. I have these, you know, piles of books <laughs> to read on the subjects that we were writing about, which just fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And then um, Laurie King, God bless her, I called her and said, I'm setting a book in London in 1924. What the hell do I do? <laughs> she sent me some books on loan. And she also said, go to used bookstores and see if you can find old, from that period, maps and tourist guides because that's where you'll find out what neighborhoods you could go to, what neighborhoods you couldn't go to, mm-hmm. what theaters were open, you know. And um, I also got uh, some replicas of Sears catalogs from the time because what they were wearing here was the same as what they were wearing in in London, um, I watched movies. That was just at the transition between, uh, it was just before the transition to talkies. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of silent movies filmed in studios and then, uh, talkies from the thirties. There are a couple of TV shows now that are set in the twenties. Um, one is the house of Elliot, which is, mm-hmm. oh, so I love yeah, but <laughs> it's about fashion. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I need. I watched all the reruns of um, of uh, oh come on come on come on Miss Fisher, um, yes. which is set in the twenties. Uh, I called it research. Um, <laughs> so so you know it's it's um, it's that kind of thing, and I love it. I love getting those things right. I'm I'm about to do a short. I did one short story um, uh, for for uh, D N Lau. Uh, so that they w- would have kind of hit the uh, spotlight before the novel comes out. And that mm-hmm. was 
last January Ellery Queens, which is the Sherlock Holmes issue, because I actually had them meet Sherlock Holmes. Um, I'm doing another one in which they, you know, Holmes has now no part, but uh, it is set around um, London theater of the time. Should I tell you what, what, what sparked this story? Yes, please. I'm on, I'm on a Facebook group uh, dedicated to Sherlock Holmes and tea. Uh, it's called the uh, Tea Brokers of Mincing Lane. And one of the people in the group decided she was going to ask Google's AI, which is Bard, to give her a, a comprehensive list of all the works that involve Sherlock Holmes and tea. And it did. And it was right, except that it, when it came to the end of the list, it started making things up. It listed all the works that existed, and then it started listing the works that it thought should exist based on what did exist. And some of them it attributed to actual people who are actual writers. Some of them it attributed to itself, um, (laughs) a writer named Bard. And it just cracked me up. And one of those books was called The Tea Room of the Damned. And I thought, oh, somebody <laughs> needs to write that story, and it needs to be me. Um, so I, I am doing that. Uh, another one was called, uh, I think, Sherlock Holmes and the Teacup of Doom. But that <laughs> that's a little too silly. But the Tea Room of the Damned, I thought, boy, if, yeah. if there was ever a story I need to write. So that's, I'm going to do that. Um, so, so, you know, AI is good for something. But, yeah, yeah. It's something to watch out for, but it is good for something. Yeah. So, um, that, um, you know, and that's kind of where ideas for stories, yeah, ideas for stories come from. You know, there's just, they are yeah. endless. They are yeah. endless. The world just presents them to you. I love you when you said that it's it's all in your subconscious already. So you just need to give it space to be. And I think that that's an encouraging thing for many of us to hear. Oh, I I think, you know, so many writers think they have to know everything before they put anything on, on paper. Um, I, I, when I, I took a drawing course once where, uh, there would be a figure or a bowl of fruit or whatever it was, and we're all, and one guy could not start one day. He just couldn't, he just, and the teacher came along, took his paper down from off the easel and squished it all up and then smoothed it out and put it back. And she said, see, now your paper is ruined. You can't do anything to that paper worse than what I already did. So you might as well draw on it. <laughs> and that's, you know, I sort of feel like that. Um, I also want to quote the great Jan Burke, who mm-hmm. once said, it's a lot easier to grow flowers in shit than air. Mm-hmm. You know, put it down. <laughs> And look at it, and then you can fix it. But so many people are afraid they have to know everything before they start. And what I'm saying is you already know everything. You just can't reach it. It's in your mm-hmm. subconscious. You can't get there if you're one of those people like me who can't get there. Just let it happen and then organize it and control it and, yeah. and, and make, make it right. But don't wait until it's visible because it won't get to be visible until you make it visible page by page and yeah. then make it right page by page. Um, I, one other, one other quote, uh, Annie Dillard, uh, who wrote a book called the writing life. Uh, Annie Dillard had unfortunately no sense of humor, 
So um, it's a very earnest book, but there's some really good things in it. And one of them, she says that when you get an idea and it's a good idea, don't try to save it for a better place in the book or a better mm -hmm. book. Use it. Use it where it came because these things bubble up from below like water in a well. And you won't get what's below if you don't take off what's at the top. Mm. Just keep going and see where you're going, and then you can refine what you're doing. But you can't refine it if it's all just sitting in your head. Oh, that's great. I mean, usually I ask, you know, for best piece of writing advice. Worse, you've been giving us nothing but gems of writing advice well, as we the, as we talk about. This. They're the gems that I that I have gotten and and have used. Um, yeah, it worked for me. So. Yeah, well, look to toward the melody is I think could yeah. be a tattoo for heaven's sake. I mean, that's oh, a, yeah. that is that is the best. That yeah. is, the best. and it always works. Yeah, and so this is exciting for fans that you have so many you know, projects and you know things moving and and you know juggling lots and and, and you know an inspiring. Um, an inspiring career. What has surprised you? This will be our last question, I guess. But what, what, what has surprised you about your writing career? <laughs> What's really surprised me is um, how I'm, I'm suddenly, um, you know, 30 years into it. How did, how did this happen? <laughs> I got so old. No, but it, um, it sort of has surprised me. Um, that I did get started. I mean, that, that I was published in the first place mm -hmm. and that I'm still here. Um, mm -hmm. that, that, that people are still interested, that I still have more ideas that I can use. Um, that I will probably die with some books unwritten, which is what you want to do because right. you don't uh, die with all your work complete. And now you're just sitting around. Um, but it, it surprises me that I'm, still here and that there are so many great books being published and you read them and every now and then you think oh man i wish i'd written that but mostly you think oh i never thought about that how great that is or what a wonderful setting that is or my god the language in this one and and uh that there are still such great books being published i just yeah. love it yeah. um and and i and i and I know that you asked about my career, but I have to say that in the career of crime writing, I love that there are so many diverse voices now. There weren't when mm -hmm. I was coming. There weren't yeah. all that many women, and all the women were white, um, mm -hmm. except for um, Barbara Neely. You know, she was kind of it. Uh, and now there are so many young writers right. of um, different ethnicities, different uh sexual orientations i i just think it's fabulous and and they're and they're such good writers um mm -hmm. there are so many young good writers of of um you know a couple of white ones too um <laughs> a couple a couple of men also uh, it's it's so great to see so many great young writers coming along um yeah. i am surprised to find i am no longer one of the new young writers <laughs> keep thinking of myself as that and people keep reacting to me like I'm, you know, an OG. I'm not really, <laughs> an OG, but I realize I did know the OGs, you know, I mean, I, 
I knew people who've been dead for years. So, <laughs> so um, I am, I am just, uh, I'm, I'm kind of thrilled and surprised that the genre is still as strong as it is and going off in, in other directions. Um, that the, the rise of the graphic novel, I think is great. The, um, I said mashup the other day. Somebody told me I had to say hybrid uh, science fiction, uh, mm-hmm. or, or you know, slightly uh, slightly weird, yeah. um, whatever it is. You know, the otherworldly stuff. Um, I love it um, that that the genre is is seems to be doing so well, and uh, and that's you know. And then I I just love sitting down at my desk every day and you know getting a stomachache. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't wish a stomach ache on anyone, but uh, but I'm glad that you still get them. And it sounds like you're going to have them for a long time. And that's good news for readers. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for this great conversation. Oh, I, I tell you, I had a lot of fun. I, I think it's great. And it, it's certainly better than, you know, writing for an hour and a half. <laughs> but now I guess I better go back to it because I'm editing a book. And uh, don't tell my uh, publisher that I, you know, have been having fun. All right. I won't I won't tell anyone, I promise. <laughs> Thank you, SJ. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.